Hey there, Nogginuts listening audience. Thanks again for listening. It's Jake, and I don't know why I keep introducing myself. Maybe for new people. My name's Jake Wiskirchen. I don't know if you're new to this, uh, but uh, that's that's me. I've been <laughs> hosting this for about five and a half years now, which uh, seems like, I don't know, it's, it's crazy to me. Uh, listenership keeps growing, too, which I am always humbled by and somewhat surprised by, I think. And... Um, I don't know. We we get uh, you know anywhere between two and four hundred downloads per episode anymore these days, and and I I think it's it's just such an honor to be able to speak to that many people because it's um, you know I, I never thought that what I had to say would be absorbed by this many people. You know, seven, seven years ago when we formed Zephyr Wellness, I thought you know what if we can augment professional counseling and psychotherapy in Northern Nevada by creating an agency that employs practitioners who don't feel like they have to flee into private practice because agency work is so unbearable, then then we've done our job, right? And if I can coach other people into opening their own practices, that's that's how we augment counseling. And, and it didn't stop there, though. It uh, grew into things like YouTube channel and, um, and podcasting and I had a radio show. Uh, Zephyr sponsored a radio show for about 16 months that was weekly. It was a half hour long here on, in Reno, Nevada. It was a you know, local terrestrial AM radio station. And um, and that, that kind of gave me the, the, uh, the, the opportunity, I guess, or the experience to start doing podcasting, which I had no idea how to do or what it was really back in 2016. But um, anyway, I'm, 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 I'm overwhelmed that the amount of eyeballs – that fall on our YouTube videos and the amount of ears that hear what I have to say either through this medium or through the other podcast I do called guns and mental health is just truly overwhelming. And I appreciate it all. And with that, I think comes a, it comes a responsibility not to become too cavalier or say things that are too audacious. I certainly don't want to be giving advice uh, if I can help it because I don't know what you're going through and advice, if given, should be very highly individualized. Um, so so I work pretty hard at this and, and I work really hard at continuing to have insights and be aware of my own reactions to things because, I mean, hey, if I'm going to teach other people how to communicate for a living and how to know themselves, I should probably work on myself too along the way so that I'm consistent and authentic as possible. And the reason that I'm saying all this is to to frame up a conversation that I had last week with a friend who was in town who had met me, we'd met each other. We didn't actually meet at this this thing, but but we met at a conference where I did some speaking on emotional functioning. And later she reached out uh, and was interested in some other things. And we, we just became friends. She lives in Las Vegas and I'm going to keep her nameless just so, uh, cause I don't have her permission to share necessarily. Um, but she's, she's been awesome. She's been a great advocate and a supporter and, and I appreciate that. But she came up for a, a, a conference uh, just last week, like I said, and we had lunch and caught up and whatnot. And, um, I really appreciate what she gave me as far as insight because it it kind of made me stop and take note. Um, and here's what she said. She said, you know, the last few podcasts, your uh, tone seems to have changed, your presentation. And uh, and I said, oh, yeah, it's probably because I've, I've found myself at an increasing place of peace in my life. And I said some stuff about not having to slay dragons anymore and take on the world, which was a reference to some work that I did politically and 
uh, with my licensing board and, and with systemic change across the, the profession and whatnot. And she says, no, I don't, I don't think that's it. It's, it's almost like you've become resigned. Uh, and it's like the fire's gone out. And she says, I, you know, I liked, I like the Jake who is, you know, on fire and, and full of vigor and, and zest and enthusiasm. My words, not hers. I'm paraphrasing, but I thought, man, you, you know what? You're right. Uh, I, I have changed and I don't think it was as intentional as I wanted it to be. So, you know, my defense of course was no, 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 no. I've, I'm just, I'm just getting better at finding peace and tranquility in my life. And I'm pushing my baseline happiness higher and so forth. And, and, and I think part of that may be true is that I've found my peace, but uh, uh, another part of it is something else that she highlighted, which is that she's detected a tone of, um, not bitterness, not cynicism, but more like um, resignation, I guess, is is the better way of saying it. And she says, I don't like it. <laughs> I like I like when you were, you know, teaching and educating in the last few podcasts, Naga Notes specifically she's talking about, uh, were not that. It was more uh, bellyaching about the state of affairs in the world and frustrations about how people aren't doing the right thing. And, and I thought, you know what, you're right. Um, I need to take this to heart and I need to examine it because... One thing that I try to teach people is the way to challenge your beliefs and question the things that you instinctively react out of, you know, the worldview, if you will, that we all have, is to notice very well and very quickly when you get defensive. So if somebody gives you a piece of feedback and your first response is to justify it or explain it or rationalize it, that is a defense. Now, the defense may be accurate, but it's still a defense nonetheless because somebody is likely poking at one of your blind spots. So I needed to sit with this, and I, I wrestled with it because I thought there was a, a significant amount of truth in this feedback that I was given. And I've uh, I've decided to make a little shift, and I wanted to, to share that with you guys. And, and I also wanted to get some feedback, too, if you don't mind, you know, those of you who listen and know how to reach me, you know, shoot me an email or text message or whatever, and see if I'm way off base here or if I'm if I'm accurate. But I think I think what's happened to me over the last uh, two years, probably two and a half years, and yes, some of this coincides with pandemics and lockdowns and that sort of thing. But I think part of it too is I've I've burned out, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about burnout. But that's not the overarching point. The overarching point is that you may be experiencing this too, and I want you to to feel comfortable enough to explore it in your own world and make necessary changes if you have to. My necessary change is going to be to remove myself from social media for quite some time. I don't. I I had originally declared on Twitter that my sober October, so so to speak, is going to be to leave Twitter. And it may happen before October. I'm recording this on the 19th of September, so if anybody looks back in the timeline down the road, you'll see. You know, there's probably going to be a correlation. But I uh, I realized that in making Twitter, specifically Twitter, I'm also on Instagram, but I don't use that very much. This because it's you know life's too busy and it's hard to keep up with stuff. Plus, I just I don't know. I don't feel like posting pictures all the time, but. Specifically with Twitter, I've I've found it edifying. I've I've made it useful, and it took several months. And that's that's not like three several. That's more like nine or ten several months. But when I did, it became gr- a great utility to me. I learned amazing information. I've met, I've made friends from across the country and across the world, really, uh, different countries through. 
talking about things that matter to me, uh, issues of equality and justice and not in the fuzzy buzzword way. I mean, like real actual justice, you know, protecting kids from being masked in school is a big, big deal to me. Um, you know, people being forced to do things against their will by governments that may be pushing an agenda of filling the coffers of profiteering companies. That's a, that's a big deal to me. I don't, I don't want people's personal agency and autonomy taken away by uh, powerful entities that don't necessarily seek their consent. That's one of the hallmarks of my profession is to seek consent prior to treatment and then collaborate with the treatment goals and the interventions along the way. That hasn't happened in the last couple of years. And I think you know, the political endeavor really brushed up against that. It gave me a, a really close view on what can and cannot be changed with regard to policy and legislation. You know, working on my licensing board did the same thing. And so, you know, when, when I when I had this lunch the other day, I realized that the the accuracy in reflecting on my my own tone was one that's, you know, honestly the some of the light had gone out, I think. I I became a little more um I don't know, embittered, jaded, perhaps. And I don't want that to come across to the listening audience. This this show, when we kicked off, was designed to augment and enrich your noggin with, you know, new concepts and considerations and and new research and ideas about counseling, psychotherapy, spirituality, health, lifestyle, you know, all that stuff. And if all that it's become is a format or a forum for venting frustrations without solutions, I don't think we're doing justice to the to the process. I don't think I'm honoring the whole intent. Uh, the information may be interesting for sure, and certainly gaining knowledge from different perspectives from people who are up to their elbows and whatever their personal uh, endeavors are is, is very useful. But I want to make sure that we're still staying solution focused. And what I mean by that is if we're just simply complaining and not offering potential, you know, remedies to these complaints, then we're not doing our job. And I, I want to make sure we're not doing that. So simultaneous to that, I want to continue inspiring people. I want to, I want to give hope. And that's, it's, it sounds like a little bit of a humble brag and maybe it is, I don't know. Um, uh, but the idea is that, you know, when you launch a, a podcast like this and it starts out with 10 or 20 listeners and then it grows into 40 or 60 and then it goes into a couple hundred that's bigger than any auditorium I've ever spoken in. And I, I want to make sure that I'm I'm preserving the integrity of the message. I'm not making it all about me. And I'm not acting out of an unconscious function of frustration simply because I am on Twitter. I am digesting more information than probably any human is supposed to. And I, I need to be able to separate the, the goings-on of the world and the opinions I form of it from the you know, the uplifting message that we're supposed to be creating, crafting, and sharing on this medium. So I want to spend a little bit of time educating here and I want to, I want to close with a, with a positive. So we'll get to that in a second. So let's, let's spend today's podcast talking about something that I'm seeing a, a pretty significant conflation in and a conflation is just, you know, a confusing of terminology or an overlapping of meaning. And the conflation I see is is among a few different concepts. Uh, I mentioned burnout earlier. Burnout is one. I want to talk about something called moral injury. And I want to talk about um, something else called compassion fatigue. And I, I want to make sure that we're we're clear on our terminologies. Okay. So so as we continue here, let's let's define terms. 
and I'll tell you why definitions are important here in a second. Compassion fatigue doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, and I say that a little tongue in cheek because it's become a very popular topic and I don't want to invalidate the people who originated this phrase and they come from the medical profession. I, what, from what I've dug into, it seems to have originated in nursing and nurses like most medical professionals are taught to go in, treat something and move along. But what happens is when your bedside as a nurse, you hear patients talk and when they talk, they are imparting their woes and distresses and so forth. And nurses in nursing school aren't well trained to tolerate that and check it at the door and then move on to the next patient. Uh, people in the counseling profession are supposed to be able to do that because we're specifically trained to sit with somebody while they express all their frustrations and so forth and then not bring it home with us. So when nurses started talking about this compassion fatigue concept, what they're really saying is I'm wearing out of hearing these patients talk about their problems because I wasn't given a mechanism by which I could process through, dump it, and move on, knowing that the patient's ability to tolerate that stuff and process through it and move on is up to them. It's not up to me. My job is to come in here and run the IV, you know, tend to the wound, whatever, prep for surgery, and and not you know, become a counselor. Well, they, they become counselors, but they weren't trained to do that. So compassion fatigue as a concept came from the nursing field. The problem is professional counseling hijacked it. And now we've got counselors running around claiming compassion fatigue. And there's all sorts of continuing ed credit opportunities, seminars, webinars, conferences that center on how to deal with compassion fatigue. Now let's define compassion. Compassion from Latin is calm, meaning with, and pati, which is to suffer. So literally defined, compassion is to suffer with someone. The conflation with that term becomes really problematic when we start suffering for or thinking that we have to suffer for somebody else. We have to suffer on their behalf. And that's not true. What, what ends up happening is we end up taking the, the suffering home with us and we can't, we can't check it at the door, so to speak, when we come home and be with our pets and our loved ones. So what happened was these, these nurses were getting tired of being compassionate, which makes sense, but it also makes nonsense because if you're suffering with somebody, I don't know how you can ever tire from that. All you're doing is sitting in their presence while they suffer. You're not doing the suffering on their behalf. So if you can sit with somebody while they're expressing their own anguish, then you can say, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. The doctor will be with you right now, you know, in a moment or whatever and leave and then go on to the next one. The problem is when it sticks in the brain. And I think we need to do a better, better job of training our medical professionals to leave that stuff at the door. You know, uh, I hate the phrase stay in your lane because it's been used as a pejorative and it's been very condescending. But truly, we have our lanes and we have our tasks and our obligations and we don't want to stray from them lest we invite the, you know, the opportunity to practice out of scope or we, we start going in places we're not trained or we don't have experience or we don't have specialization. So the idea, though, is that go in and do your job and there's going to be stuff, stuff swirling around you, right? So let's take it out of healthcare, for example, to really drive this point home. I've worked a gazillion jobs in my life from uh, uh, warehousing to food service to banking to you know, private security, dabbled in law enforcement, insurance. I mean, I, I ran the gamut. And we'll, we'll take the warehousing for a, se for a second. Warehousing and retail, right? You go in and you, you can do the same thing in retail. Your job is to stock the shelves or put 
boxes away or drive the forklift and then maybe interact with some customers while you're checking them out and taking their money and giving them a receipt, bagging their groceries, etc. Well, there's always going to be stuff swirling around, conversations in the aisles, uh, maybe direct conversations with you at the cash register, your coworkers are going to be going through stuff. Um, but for some reason, retail clerks don't express compassion fatigue. I think the reason is because they go there and they know their job and they do it and they quote unquote, stay in their lane. They stay with what they're tasked with and they don't start reaching out into, you know, default psychotherapy mode. Uh, bartenders will do that. I also bartended for a number of years. And so when you, when you get this opportunity to interact with people, people are going to share stuff, especially if they like you and they trust you and you're not a jerk. But for some reason, we don't, we don't often hear the same, uh, you know, terminology tossed around outside of healthcare. Why is that? Well, uh, like I said, I think people know that when they show up at the, at the retail store and they're selling clothing or whatever they're doing, that they're not, they're not supposed to be there to validate the customer's complaints about their marriage or their children's failing grades or whatever. In hospital settings, that probably happens a little more often because there's medical procedures, there's risk involved and so forth. And it seems more uh, tangible, more fixable. To the, to the listening audience who might be the nurse or the, the anesthesiologist or whomever. So when we talk about compassion fatigue, I want to make sure that our definition is accurate. Compassion is to suffer with somebody, not for them. You don't take their stuff home. You don't try to solve it for them. Even if you could, that would be very inappropriate because what you would do in that moment is deny the person the ability to solve it themselves, thereby teaching them that their, their solutions are within. They're not from without. So even if we could, we'd put ourselves in a, in a very unnecessary position of, of dependence for that person to rely on us to solve all their problems. We don't want to do that. It's infantilizing, too. And that term needs to, to treat people like infants, right, uh, to treat them like children. Parents do sometimes want to solve their kids' problems, but the idea is to watch them grow as well and help them fail forward, so to speak. So we don't want to infantilize people by pretending that we can solve their problems by giving them advice or telling them to go hire an attorney or file that complaint or whatever it is. So we don't want to suffer for people. We don't want to suffer on their behalf. We just want to sit in their anguish with them. And then I don't know how you grow tired of that, especially in our profession where we're supposed to be the place where people go to express their frustrations and their woes and their anguish. We need to learn to leave that at the door. So that's that's compassion fatigue. I don't think it should exist. I think it's a I think it's an inappropriate use of of terminology to excuse away poor boundaries, which is really what we're talking about here. If I'm taking your problems home with me at the end of the day, I am not having good boundaries. I'm I'm not setting myself up for success. I'm certainly not setting myself up to be present with my family when I get home if I'm taking my patient's stuff with me. Um, for example, I just recently started working, you know. Uh, with several patients again. I hadn't been doing that for a couple of years. I really enjoy it. I found that I'm pretty good at it <laughs> after a couple of years off of just doing administrative stuff and community service. But uh, I can't I can't take one patient's stuff with me into the next session. That would be very inappropriate for the next patient because I wouldn't be fully present with them. And certainly after a long day of six or eight people, I, I can't take that stuff home with me. It'd be unfair to my family because I'm not, I'm not present with them. So we want to leave stuff at the door we want to suffer with people while they're present with us and then and then let it go. It's not my job to take your stuff home with me. And I know that kind of flies in the face of popular culture these days that says we should, you know, be empathic and care about all things at all times and all people. It's like, no, no, no. That's a that's a recipe for disaster, which gets us into burnout. So burnout is not compassion fatigue. It's not it's not the 
listening over and over and over to people's problems, what it is is working too much. So if your calendar is too full and you don't have proper rest, that that's what we would call burnout. And burnout uh, can be solved. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment too. And then the other thing we're talking about is moral injury. This might be a new concept for some people, but moral injury in a nutshell is when your personal ethics, values, and beliefs are contradictory with the organization's ethics, values, and beliefs. So a classic example of this, and it happens all the time in healthcare, is if you're working in a hospital, you have your, you're, you're a clinician, right? You're, you might be a PA or an MD or a nurse or a psychotherapist or, or just a, you know, a back of the, back of the house person who doesn't front face with the public, uh, processing claims, billing, uh, whatnot, janitorial even. And you have your, your professional ethics. If you have a professional ethical code and a license, that license uh, hinges on state law. Some of those state laws might actually include your ethical codes. Uh, some of the state laws might also restrict what you're allowed to do in certain settings. And then you have your personal values and beliefs. If you're religious, you might have religious beliefs. If you're political, you might have political beliefs. And when you're working for an organization that is not aligned properly with those values, attitudes, ethics, and beliefs, you'll end up with something called moral injury. And an example of this might be if the hospital you're working for is asking you to upcode uh, procedures so that they can make more money, or if you're on a if you're on a fee splitting type of arrangement where you get a percentage of what you bill for, then you might also have a financial interest in upcoding some of those procedures. And we want to make sure that we have good moral boundaries in place there so that we don't get this moral injury sensation. Sometimes hospital administrators will ask people to stay longer because they're billing insurance for it. Insurance will push back and say, discharge this person, especially in psychiatric care. If you're in a psych hospital, insurance is always going to be pushing to discharge the person faster because then they can stop paying for it. If you're the clinician practitioner on the ground floor treating the patient, you may say, no, they need more time. They need more interventions. They need whatever. Insurance is going to be fighting you. Hospital is going to be fighting you one way or another. You're stuck in the middle. And you might have a very well-articulated reason for doing what you do, but it's being overridden by upper management that has a positional authority over you. And that can become coercive. It can become a violation of the power differential between boss and employee or supervisor and subordinate or even you know supervisor slash mentor and intern or resident. So that's how moral injury can happen. And there's a solution to that too. So solutions. If you're suffering burnout... Balance is what's required, and sometimes it takes a break. You know, and and I'm I know I'm I'm inviting concepts that maybe people believe that they're trapped into not being able to entertain. So, if you don't get the opportunity, for example, to have paid time off or uh, sick time, you you might believe that you you're trapped and you can't get out, and therefore you're just supposed to just suffer the burnout or the moral injury. Um, not often, but sometimes that can be the case. But you need to take a, a good self-inventory and, and look in the mirror and, and look around at your tightest, closest circle of friends, advisors, family members and say, look, is this thing that I'm dealing with at work, this burnout, is this impacting me in such a way that I need a vacation and I'm willing to make the financial sacrifice to make that happen because I have a, lo- a lot longer life to live than just this? Uh, or do I need to get a new job? Do I need to change careers altogether? You know, so that's that's a something that can be addressed. You can address your burnout by lessening the workload. But if you're inappropriately labeling your burnout as something else, 
your intervention strategy is not going to work. So let's say that it's actually moral injury that you're suffering, but you're calling it burnout or fatigue or, and I'll just ditch the compassion word because fatigue can be, you know, tired. You can be tired. That could be burnout too. But, um, but the idea is if it's actually moral injury and a time off from work, isn't going to solve that because inherently you're at, you're in conflict with your boss or your organization, then coming back to work, you're going to be going back into the same mess that you, you took a vacation from. So we want to make sure that our intervention strategies are appropriate land, uh, appropriately aligned. And the only way to do that is to get appropriate diagnosis of what's going on. If it's moral injury and you're accurately labeling it as moral injury, you got some options. You could challenge the authority and push back, offer policy suggestions or changes. And if those aren't welcome, you can leave. And I understand that that's hard, but it becomes a, a risk benefit analysis of what's worth the sacrifice. And everybody still has this option. I want to give, I want to give encouragement to people who, who may be in a situation where they say, I can't possibly. And it's like, well, yeah, more, maybe you can, and you just haven't allowed yourself to realize it yet. I don't, you know, I don't particularly like the idea of suggesting that people leave their places of employment and not have a, an exit strategy. That's, that's pretty poor advice. Uh, but you want to at least entertain the idea that can't has to be eliminated. There's nothing you can't do. There are things that you can do that will be extraordinarily uncomfortable, but then that's where the risk benefit comes in. Is it so uncomfortable that you need to stay where you are and suffer the moral injury? Or is the moral injury more uncomfortable because at the end of the day, you can't sleep or your eating habits are poor or you're drinking too much, in which case maybe the sacrifice in the, in the short term is going to be very, very painful, but in the long term, it's going to pay off great benefits, right? But if you're calling your moral injury burnout, you're not going to address it. So let's say it's burnout. Let's say you're actually working too much. You're working seven days a week and it's just ongoing and there's always tasks and, and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. That might be a time to sit down with your, your boss or your colleagues and say, Hey, look, uh, we can't keep this up forever. We're burning the candle at both ends. I don't have time for my kids. I can't see my family. I don't even get to go to the gym anymore. Uh, and then put again, boundaries, good, effective limits are necessary for healthy living. And if you could put good boundaries on what you're doing, then you can say, all right, at the end of this project, it may be six weeks still, and you've already been at it for eight weeks. But at the end of this project, we're all taking a break. We're not doing anything for a week. That, of course, has to bump up against the pressures of making money, serving the customers, whatever it is that you, you do for a living. Uh, but, but it is an analysis that has to be conducted if you're going to escape the burnout. And as for compassion fatigue, you know, the, the solution there is to label it what it is, which is poor boundary keeping. And, the, and we're not talking about actual boundaries that you set with people. I'm not going to call that person back. I'm not going to answer any more spam. I'm not going to go on social media, right? Those are, those are actual physical boundaries you can set for yourself. These are psychological boundaries. The ability to acknowledge that the people you're dealing with are suffering and their suffering is theirs to keep and theirs to solve and not yours. That's a psychological boundary that you have to put in place mentally so that you yourself can be mentally sharp and astute and healthy for the next thing that comes along. Cause the next thing that comes along might be personal. It might be that your kid is ailing, uh, struggling in school, um, dealing with bullying issues, or your spouse is also suffering moral injury at work and you are burned out. How do you address that? Well, we have to label things accurately. So, uh, and, and at the end of the day, this all takes sacrifice, but here's the cool part. You know, I said, I was going to close with a, with an uplifting, positive encouragement. 
I got told one time, and that's all it took was one time. I've heard it several times since, but I got told one time by my good friend and mentor, Christian Conti, that if a human being has done a thing, that thing is therefore human nature because a human did it. You and I, as humans, have the same nature as every other human being that's ever walked the planet, meaning we have the same potential as every other human being that's ever walked the planet. That's potential for great, and that's potential for terrible. And we want to be mindful of the direction that we choose to put our attention. If we're always focusing on the terrible, then we're going to end up doing terrible things. But if we focus on the greatness, we can overcome, we can create, we can deconstruct and reconstruct. We can leave behind, we can change, we can morph, evolve, progress, and we don't have to be the same thing that we think we've always been. So if you're in a situation where you're experiencing a stuckness, it seems like you're stuck and you can't get out, or it seems like you're trapped. And notice I'm not saying feeling here, because those are not feelings, those are interpretations of life. Feelings are something you can't do anything about, all you can do is tolerate them. Stuck is not a feeling. Okay, overwhelmed is not a feeling. It's an experience. It's an interpretation. And you can change that cognitively by simply readjusting how you think about it. You can choose to say, I'm overwhelmed right now. There's too much to do. But in six weeks, I'm going to change my priorities and I will no longer be overwhelmed because I am taking charge. You can say like, I'm stuck right now. It seems like I'm stuck. It seems like there's no way out. But in four months or two months, I have a plan and my strategy is X. And then my response will be Y, uh, letter Y, not W-H-Y. Um, and then the result will be Z. Uh, so if you go if you go, practical goal setting, I know what my problem is, I know what my goal is, I know what my objectives are, and now my intervention is to do these things, then it gives you the opportunity to overcome, to push through, and then at the back end, you get to tell a really cool story about how you used to be stuck and you're not anymore. And that's pretty awesome because that then inspires other people who see you change and they, being humans, know that they have the same capacity because they watched you do it. They know they can also do it. So I hope that um, I hope I didn't ramble too much. I hope this was somewhat linear. And I hope that this insight that was given to me by, by my friend and colleague uh, is useful for you guys also, because it was for me. I need to make some adjustments in my life. I'm going to go on my sober October and get off Twitter. might start that sooner than later. Uh, I'm going to shut down all distractions in life that aren't immediately related to my family, my business, and my volunteer efforts with Pinecrest Academy, Northern Nevada and walk the talk America. And we're going to see how that goes. And I hope that if I can demonstrate this to you too, you'll see it and go, you know what, if Jake can do it, I can do it. And then maybe we just start becoming more connected. We become a little more, um, focused, you know, not, not so broadly scattergun shooting across, uh, all things that dazzle us or, or interest us. And then maybe in the end, we all become healthier because we all turn a little more inward. Uh, I've said before, and I don't know that I've said it on here recently, but I'll say it again. When I teach emotions, the emotions of shame and guilt are designed to get us right with our tribes. Okay. So if I feel shame, it's because I failed to meet the expectations of those around me, my quote unquote tribe. Guilt says, go make it right. If I'm accurately expressing shame and guilt, I'm doing things accurately within the tribe that gets me, you know, connected and reconciled and forgiven. The problem now is that we are surrounded by so many distractions and so many opportunities 
to interact with people that it looks to the brain like our tribe is thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of people, depending on your sphere of influence. For you, maybe even like, you know, hundreds. But we're designed to be in tribes with dozens and maybe scores. That's like 20 groups of 20, if you're not, if you don't know that. Um, not hundreds, not thousands, not tens of thousands, and certainly not millions. Our brains, however, still register the same shame-guilt response if somebody out in the internet disagrees with an opinion we post or doesn't like a photograph or says that we, they, they don't, they're not aligned with our beliefs. The brain registers that as a shame response because our brains are telling us that person is in your tribe, you failed them, go make it right, except you can't because they don't care and they're not in your tribe anyway. So I want you guys to think about this and be mindful of how you're interacting. And I think maybe we all just need to shrink our tribes considerably from where they appear to be. You don't have to perform for everybody. You have to perform for the people who asked you to perform. And that goes down to jobs, goes down to neighborhoods, and it certainly goes for Twitter. So with that, um, I, I thank you for listening. Um, thanks for entertaining uh, my, my thoughts and indulging me in this little, uh, rant. I hope, I hope I'm not coming off as ranty. That was, that was one of the criticisms is I'm, I'm getting a little too ranty and I don't want to rant. There's plenty to rant about, but if we don't, if we don't offer solutions along with our rants, I don't know that we're helping move, move society forward. So thanks for listening. Um, check out videos at zephyrwellness.org. If you want to learn more about the emotional functioning stuff, it's all there on our YouTube channel. If you want to take a free and anonymous mental health screening, you can do so at WTTA.org. That's WTTA.org, walkthetalkamerica.org slash love. You can take free anonymous mental health screening there. You can also do it at our website, same screenings. Um, go to the Zephyr Wellness website and get free screenings link. And uh, share it around. If this was useful for you, then please share it with others. It may be useful for them too. And so on behalf of our Zephyr Wellness family and on behalf of the Noggin Notes family, uh, I wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.